Well, hey, good morning. Um, this morning is um, a bit bittersweet because this is our last Sunday uh, going through our sermon series, The Spirit of the Church. Um, I, I calculated this morning we've been in this for four months now, which is like the longest sermon series I've ever done. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know how you felt throughout this, but I've been so incredibly wrecked and stretched in so many good ways. And uh, I hope that's the same for you. And um, I had planned this series, I had thought through doing this series um, last year, pre-COVID. And then it felt all the more important to ask this question of like, what is the church in the midst of a time when like, you know, doing this is difficult. <laughs> and I've been so encouraged all throughout, um, week after week after week, that nowhere did we see that the core thing of the early church was meeting in a building on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. <laughs> but rather the core task of the church was being open to the spirit of God among them, being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus, and then for us to be invited into that same sort of pattern. It's not to say that this isn't important, but um, the church continues on even, even when this becomes difficult, right? Um, so today we are finishing in Acts chapter 15, which in many ways is like this monumental shift within um, the story of Acts as a whole. And part of the reason why we're, we're ending here, because there's this, this dramatic shift within the narrative as a whole. So as we get ready to jump into that, uh, would you join me for a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, we are so grateful uh, for this chance to, to be together. God, uh, we're grateful for the beautiful weather, the chance to gather in person, but God, we're also grateful for technology and the chance to gather um, together both in person and online, uh, whether that be in our, our living rooms, our porches, or wherever uh, we may find ourselves. God, thank you that your spirit is here. We acknowledge your spirit. We acknowledge that your same spirit meets us here in person as online, and God, we're grateful for your transcendent spirit that connects us and unites us. And God, as we uh, open up the scriptures and wrestle with them, we ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us and shape us and form us into the image of Jesus. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, I was listening to a podcast with, uh, it was an interview with one of my favorite uh, thought leaders. And uh, the interviewers asked this thought leader, uh, what are some really meaningful practices or habits or rituals that you've taken on in your life? And this individual's uh, response was a, a bit perplexing to me because he uh, named uh, some decisions that he's made about his clothing. He said that uh, he was influenced by the documentary, the, the Minimalists, that came out a few years ago that was really popular and began to read some of uh, their stuff and uh, made this decision to declutter his closet and like really minimalize his, um, his choice of clothing and even his options in clothing. So he basically took on what he would describe as like a uniform, wearing like the same thing every day. Now, in addition to uh, the minimalists, he cited another um, motivating factor in this decision, and that was something that is called decision fatigue. Now, decision fatigue is a phenomenon that is quite literally what the name suggests. It's a, a fatigue or a tiredness or a weariness that comes from making decisions of having to choose between this or that. And before you go thinking that that may sound a bit melodramatic, right? <laughs> uh, the studies seem to suggest that decision fatigue is more than just like, oh, I'm tired of making decisions, but that there's actually a correlation between quantity of decisions 
and quality of decisions. That as our quantity of decisions are increasing, the quality of our decisions decreases. So the more decisions that we're making, the poorer decisions we're making. And it's actually more than just like um, making bad decisions, but it also leads to like um, indecision, not being able to make decisions, or um, procrastination, putting off making decisions. And it goes even, even further than that into beginning to affect our mental health. Because decision fatigue can lead to things like irritability, it can lead to things like depression, and it can lead to things like anxiety. Now, um, I don't have any sort of evidence to, to back this one up, but uh, I would suggest that we live at a point in time in history where we are making more decisions than at any other point in the history of the world. I mean, for most of us, we carry like the supercomputer that we call a cell phone in our pocket that has immense capabilities that wouldn't have been dreamed possible 100, 50, 20, 10, maybe even five years ago. And as soon as we hold that, we have the capability of doing so much good and so much damage. And that was not something that had been possible prior to now. And that's just one example. And as we're faced with all of these decisions, it can begin to wear us down. It can begin to cause us to feel this fatigue. And so uh, one of the suggestions to combat uh, decision fatigue was, first of all, to minimize the amount of decisions that you have to make. <laughs> so recognize like, uh, that there is a multitude of, of decisions that are having to be made in our life and narrow those down. And then secondly, to focus on what's actually important. So in some ways, we're streamlining decision making, right, to, to prevent uh, decision fatigue. Well, as I was listening to this podcast, I was obviously a bit... Um, persuaded by it because I wear the same thing almost all the time, right? I have very limited choices. Do I wear uh, a black shirt, gray shirt, black jeans, dark jeans, or if Notre Dame's playing, one of my three Notre Dame shirts, right? Um, and the more that I sat with this, I was, I was persuaded because I, I gravitated to this idea that when it comes to decision making, it's not so much if I will have to make a decision uh, throughout the day, but when I'll have to make a decision throughout the day. And when it comes to the point of having to make a decision, will I actually have the capacity to do that well? And as we think about uh, our, our, our lives, not our individual lives, but our, our shared collective life, this thing that we call the church, I think the same applies for us as well. Within the life of the church, it's not so much when, if we'll have to make a decision, but rather it's when we'll have to make decisions. And when we make decisions within the life of our church, will we actually have the capacity to do that well? In fact, I would go on to, to I would even argue that like making decisions is actually woven into what it means to be part of the church. That uh, making decisions on this or that or um, on X or Y, like that's actually woven into the DNA of what it means to be part of the church. And when we talk about making decisions within the church, I know how this conversation often goes. It's how can we keep the most tradition, right? <laughs> how can we keep things the way that they've always been? But I don't actually think that that's what we're getting at when we say we're making decisions as part of the church. Because I don't know if you know this, but the church in the 21st century looks an awful di lot different than it did in the 1st century. Or the 2nd century or the 3rd century. But rather, I think when it comes to making decisions, the motivating factor behind that is how can we best align ourselves with the kingdom of God? How can we best align ourselves with this vision, this dream of God that is breaking into this old order? And how can we best align ourselves with that movement? 
Now, sometimes this means keeping traditions. Other times this means letting traditions fade away so that we can best live into this dream, this reality. Um, now, I think uh, we can see this moment in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus um, almost, in some ways, commissions the church to take on this, um, this mode of making decisions. So this is several years into to Jesus' ministry, and he's gathered that people are talking about him. And so he presses his disciples, and he says, who, who are people saying that I am? What, what's, what, are, what are people saying about me? And they, they give out a few suggestions, and Jesus kind of nods, and he pushes even further, and he says, well, who, who do you say that I am? Those that are closest to me, who do you say that I am? And, G, and, and Peter, who's this bold, speak first, think second uh, sort of character, says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one, you're the one that we've been hoping for that would bring healing and wholeness into our world. And Jesus praises him. And gives him the nickname of Peter or Rock. And he says to him, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he gives Peter and I think ultimately the church this immense task. Where he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, binding and loosing, like, these are strange terms. We don't use them often. But for a first century Jew, this would have been like common vernacular. Because this is what a a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, would do. They would take this old ancient law, these old ancient principles, and bring them into modern um, application. Uh, And so if they doubled down on the law, they were binding it. And if they uh, loosened up and allowed some flexibility with it, they were loosening it. This was like what rabbis did to bring the law to modern life. So a, a modern example of this is the, like the age-old question of, would you steal food to feed your family, right? We're asking, like, how do we uh, bring this, this, uh, this law of do not steal into modern life? So if we bind this law of do not steal, we're essentially doubling down and saying that under no circumstances, even if your family's starving, is it okay to steal? But if we say, well... You know, your family dying is probably a bigger deal than stealing, so maybe there are some circumstances where you can pocket a loaf of bread. That would be loosening um, the law of do not steal. So Jesus looks at Peter, looks at the church, and says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Holy cow, what immense responsibility, right? That can easily quickly become like this overwhelming thing. And I think it's at this point that we can draw on some of the principles from decision fatigue and how we combat decision fatigue so that we don't find ourselves exhausted, irritable, depressed, anxious, making poor decisions in the life of the church. Now, all of this is important because as we'll see in just a second as we turn to the story in Acts 15, it wouldn't be too long before the church would start making some decisions. And in Acts 15, it's not just any old decision, but this is a monumental uh, landscape sort of shifting decision within the life of the church. Now, before we get there, remember that up to this point, we've been looking at a particular movement that has focused its life and shaped its life and oriented its life around the teachings of Jesus. This movement was primarily and almost exclusively within the Jewish faith. So we have these Jewish Uh, folk who are following, orienting themselves around the way of Jesus, and this is what we call the church. But up to this point, it's primarily, almost entirely Jewish. That is, 
until we come to the community that's being birthed in Antioch. Antioch is this radically diverse city, and there's this church community that's being birthed. And here we have not only Jews wanting to be part of this new community, but we also have Gentiles, non-Jews, that are wanting to be part of this community. And the church quickly recognizes that they have to make a decision here of what do we do with Gentiles? What do we do with the non-Jews among us? Do the Gentiles have to become Jewish? Meaning, like, do they have to take on the law, what we call the Old Testament law? Do they have to take on these dietary codes? Do the men have to become circumcised? Do they have to become Jewish to be part of the life of the community of faith? Or can they remain Gentile? Now, looking back some 2,000 years, this seems like an easy thing, right? But we have to recognize that there's two major issues at play here. The first one is an issue of Scripture, because their Scriptures said that how you respond to the goodness of God is that you become Jewish. (laughs) You submit to this law. You submit to the dietary codes. Men become circumcised. This is what it means to be part of the people of God. And so to say that Gentiles can remain Gentiles is to step away from Scripture in some way, or to loosen Scripture, to make new interpretations of Scripture of how we can become part of the people of God. The second issue is an issue of identity. Because again, up to this point, it's been primarily, if not exclusively, Jewish, which means that the, the community that they find themselves in has similar flavors to the, the community of their granny and great-granny and great-great-granny, right? Everybody was Jewish. Everybody had similar cultures and perspectives on things. Now, in the 21st century, I think we can understand this issue of moving away from Scripture because we have, what, like some 40,000 denominations? Um, we, we understand how to disagree over Scripture, right, and the, the severity of that. But I I think sometimes it can be difficult for us to to grapple with identity. Uh, I began to think about identity and the role of identity a few years ago when I was at a fundraiser at a a Mennonite church. And uh, I sat down at a table and I had struck up a wonderful conversation with this very sweet elderly woman. And she was asking about our church and asking about my life. And then she came to a moment where she asked the question in Mennonite circles, what's your last name? Now, if you're not uh, what we call an ethnic Mennonite, born into this, that doesn't mean much to you. But if you are an ethnic Mennonite, you know that she's asking, how do I know you and how are we related, right? (laughs) Because there's a list of like 15, 20 names that are acceptable in some ways, right? And I said, "Uh, well, my last name's Swanson. She had a very peculiar look on her face. And she said, oh is that Russian Mennonite, which is a way of saying, is that another set of 20 last names that are part of this thing that we call Mennonite, right? Now, I don't want to read too much into her question because I think it was a pretty innocent question. But I grappled with that. And I wonder if part of what she was getting at is that the Mennonite that she grew up in was almost an exclusively like Mennonite sort of thing that she grew up with the same sort of culture that her granny, her great-granny, her great-great-granny had, that she knew what to expect stepping into any sort of Mennonite church um, that she would enter into. And seeing somebody outside of that, like, 15, 20, 40 last names meant that there would be a new identity stepping in. There would be new culture stepping in, that there would be new ideas, new ways of thinking, new ways of being the church stepping in. And I wonder if the wheels were spinning and she was asking, is that okay. And I think the, 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 the church uh, in Acts 15 is finding themselves in a similar place of asking this question of, 
is that okay? Because if we let Gentiles in, they have a very different way of thinking and being in the world. And that's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to change what it means to be part of the community of the people of God. And is that okay? So Acts chapter 15 begins with, with um, uh, the, some individuals coming to the church in Antioch. Again, this radically diverse group of Jew and Gentile together. And these people that come to the church in Antioch are what we call team circumcision. Which, by the way, being a pastor is like one of the only uh, professions where you will ever use the phrase team circumcision. Um, so you can only use circumcision so many times in a sermon without having to make some sort of joke to break the tension with that, right? So you have uh, individuals who are like pro or team circumcision coming to the church and they're arguing that the Gentiles need to become Jewish. Meaning they need to submit themselves to the law. They need to take on these dietary laws. The men need to be circumcised to be part of the community of faith. Paul and Barnabas, who have been the the key leaders in this church, stand up and they say, no, we've seen the Spirit of God move among Gentiles, and they didn't have to become Jewish. Well, the the church as as a whole is like, we don't know what to do with this. So they send Paul and Barnabas to the mother church in Jerusalem. They say, you all figure it out. So Paul and Barnabas show up to the mother church in Jerusalem, and they have this question, they have this disagreement, and what ensues is a heated debate among the church leaders. Now, I don't know if this surprises you, but sometimes disagreements can end up a bit heated within the church, right? That's a joke, by the way. Um, so they, they ensue in this heated debate. We have some that are team circumcision that are standing up saying that circumcision, the law is the way that it has to go. You have Peter standing up saying, no, we've seen God move among the Gentiles. They don't have to become Jewish. And then there's like this dramatic moment where James stands up. And James does something different where James draws from their scriptures. James starts reciting from the prophets about this day in which the Gentiles would be welcomed into the fold of the people of God, that they would remain Gentile, that this was the purpose from the very beginning. And in conclusion, James says, therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted to idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. And then he sits down. (laughs) And you can imagine like the room looking around, raising their eyebrows, going, okay. (laughs) And that was it. That's the decision that was made. Now recognize uh, what James and the council at large is doing here is exactly what Jesus told Peter the church would be doing. They're binding and loosening. They're taking this old ancient law, this old ancient morals, principles, values, these old ancient writings, and they're bringing it to contemporary significance. And in this moment, what we see James and the council doing is not binding, not doubling down, saying you have to become Jewish, but rather loosening, opening the door, saying that others can be welcomed into the part of the community of the people of God. Uh, now, this decision may seem a bit odd because there's like these four qualifiers on it, right? Uh, we see uh, things polluted from idols, which is like involved in temple worship, uh, from fornication, which again would have been like uh, temple worship, temple prostitutes, those sorts of things, which would have been a distraction from the way of Jesus. We see uh, from things that have been strangled and things uh, of blood. Now, out of four things of what it means to follow Jesus, that seems like a a weird list, right? (laughs) But we have to recognize that within the early church, much of what happened happened around the dinner table. 
And for Jewish people, what happened on the, uh, on the dinner table was so incredibly rooted in who they were and what was seen as acceptable in the world around them. And it was down to these four things that they said, we cannot move from this, otherwise it will be violating our consciousness, it will be violating our values, it would be as if somebody brought dog casserole to a carry-in at lunch, right? Like, it would have just been so repulsive that they couldn't have done it. And so we see the church welcoming people in, we see them binding, loosening, making decisions of what to double down on, what to loosen. This is in some ways like what we see happening with masks in the midst of COVID, right? We have one group that says, let's shut everything down. Let's let the virus suffocate. Let's, let's just uh, stay at home for a few weeks till we can ride this thing out. And then we have another group that says, no, we can't do that. We have to keep things open for the sake of our well-being, for the sake of our economy. And somebody comes along and says, hey, hey we, can, we can wear masks. <laughs> and not violate the, the values of either side. We can wear masks and not spread the, the virus, and we can wear masks and keep things open for the economy, for our well-being, and we can live at peace with the midst of this. There's a decision to bind and loose, and that's part of what it means to be the church. Now, I want to sit with James's decision here for just a second, because I think as we think about what it means to be the church in the 21st century, I think there's a good bit of wisdom that we can glean from this. Again, James makes this decision to open the the church up to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, to enter into this diversity of thought and way and being in the church. And they make a decision of how to share their life together in a way that doesn't violate values and consciousness. Now, this is going to be a lot of decision-making on the part of the church, right? To make decisions of who's welcomed in and to make decisions on how we can live together. And I think that this is going to lead to decision fatigue, (laughs) to procrastinating this decision, to indecision, to being irritable, to being depressed, to being anxious. And I don't think the body of Christ needs to be making decisions in that state. And so if we can take some some of the premises from uh, decision fatigue and minimize the amount of decisions, focus on what's important, I want to suggest that when it comes to making decisions within the church, Let's always make the decision to build a bigger table. That anytime we come up to questions of whether we should include somebody or not, that we make the decision to build a bigger table, to pull up another chair, to include rather than exclude, to like just streamline this decision, to take on a uniform, if you will, of the church and say that our uniform is Uh, when in doubt, when having to face a decision, that we're going to choose to build a bigger table because in the kingdom of God, more is always better. Now, please hear me out. Like, this is not me saying that we condone everything. This is not me saying that everything is appropriate. This is not me saying that this decision will not lead to conflict. But this decision leads to things like binding and loosening, (laughs) It leads to us sitting down at the table together and figuring out how we can share our life together in a way that doesn't violate one another's principles and values and consciousness. Um, early on, uh, or binding and loosening and figuring out how to live our life together can be really exhausting work. And so I think we can actually gain the, the capacity to do that well if we just start with the premise that you're welcome at the table. Uh, early on, uh, in our marriage, and maybe even just before we got married, uh, somebody gave Allie and I a piece of advice. And they said, in your marriage, you're going to face all sorts of conflict, all sorts of uh, disagreements, all sorts of impasses along the way. 
And they gave us the advice that when you come to these disagreements, um, these conflicts, these impasses, don't, uh, don't put divorce on the table. And they said, because as soon as that comes onto the table, then you're spending your energy of do we stay together or not, rather than spending that capacity, that energy, that decision-making on how to reach a resolution. And I get it. Like, there are things that come up in life, and um, there are certain situations where for the health and well-being of everybody involved, it's probably appropriate for that to come onto the table. But as a general guideline, I think that was really helpful advice. Because if we're not spending our time deciding to be together, we can spend our time and energy of how to be together. And I think that's helpful for us to think about as the church as well. So anytime we're faced with this question of should we include blank? Should we include this person? Should we include that person? Should we include these people? Should we include those people? I want to suggest that our answer to that be yes. Because when we make decisions in the church, let's always make the decision to build a bigger table. Let's always make the decision to include, to pull up another chair to the table that we call the kingdom of God. Again, this doesn't uh, condone everything, that doesn't approve of everything, it doesn't affirm everything, it doesn't prevent conflict. But recognize that much of like Paul's letters in this book that we call the Bible is him binding and loosening. <laughs> it's him helping communities, these diverse communities of Jew and Gentile, figure out how to share life together. Sometimes with like seemingly opposite ideas of how to go about living life. And Paul is helping them work it out. But whether Jew and Gentile are welcome at the table is never in question. When we make decisions, let's always make the decision to build a bigger table. Uh, my senior year of high school, I had a math teacher by the name of Mr. Largy. Uh, Mr. Largy had a dry and stuffy sense of humor, and his, uh, which was ironic because his classroom was also dry and stuffy, which always begged the question, uh, chicken or the egg. But anyways, uh, it was our senior year, and so we were talking about uh, college choices one day. And so somebody asked Mr. Largy where he went to college, and he told us, and he said, back in the day, they were so desperate for students, the only test that they gave us for admission was the mirror test. The mirror test? What the heck is the mirror test? And he said, in Mr. Largy's voice, Oh, you know, they would take a piece of mirror and hold it up under your nostrils, and if fog showed up on the mirror, you were admitted into the school. Which, if you still don't get that, that means if you're a living, breathing human being, fog will show up on the mirror, and they were accepting literally any human with life in them, right? <laughs> and I wonder, as we think about the church, we think about this question of, should we include blank? if maybe the mirror test is a helpful guideline for us. Not like this college out of a uh, need of desperation or anything like that, but out of the radical, um, inclusive love of God that we see on full display on Jesus as he goes to the cross, even welcoming, praying, and forgiving his enemies. Friends, I want to suggest that when it comes to making decisions in the life of the church, let's always make the decision to build a bigger table. And as we do that, we can begin to experience the diversity that we see of the kingdom of heaven coming on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for the decision that was made in Acts 15. God, that you opened up um, the door to 
Jew and non-Jew, to Gentiles, to the rest of the nations. And God, we're grateful for the example in Acts 15 of, of the church making a decision. And God, what a wonderful, profound gift and responsibility that you invite us to shape what the kingdom of God looks like. God, as we do that, I pray that we would embody the radical love that we see in Jesus. God, that as we're faced with questions of should we include, we say yes. That when we make decisions, that we'll always make decisions to build a bigger table. God, we recognize that that will come with conflict, that will come with messiness, that will come with difficulty. And so, God, we ask that your spirit would be among us, helping us to bind and loosen well, to help us to figure out how to live life together. And as we do that, God, we pray that we can be a reflection of the beauty that is found in your kingdom, your dream, your vision of a new creation coming into the shell of this old creation leading towards life and life to the fullest. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.